congregation's history and the importance of that. Uh, today, Sunday, March 7th, marks the anniversary of what's called Bloody Sunday within the civil rights movement. And so reading from uh, history.com, because it pretty much summarizes the reality of today really well, um, on February 18th, white segregationalists attacked a group of peaceful demonstrators in the town of Marion, Alabama. In the ensuing chaos, an Alabama state trooper fatally shot Jimmy Lee Jackson, a young African-American demonstrator. In response to Jackson's death, a massive protest march was planned from Selma to the state capital of Montgomery, 54 miles away. A group of 600 people, including activist John Lewis, set out from Selma on Sunday, March 7th, 1965, a day that would become known as Bloody Sunday. The marchers didn't get far before Alabama state troopers wielding whips, nightsticks, and tear gas rushed the group at the Edmund Pettus Bridge and beat them back to Selma. The brutal scene was captured on television, enraging many Americans and drawing civil rights and religious leaders of all faiths to Selma in protest. Um, it's striking to me that, like I said, this was broadcast on television. If you go to YouTube and just type in Selma March, you can see actual footage from that morning. You think about you just with no trouble whatsoever coming to church today and what these individuals faced on that morning just to be able to vote. John Lewis, I read uh, John Lewis's autobiography about the civil rights movement uh, recently. And in this, I just want to read a portion of what he says describing that, mom, uh, that morning. He's the gentleman in the picture that you see kind of holding his head in the bottom right-hand corner. He says this, The American public had already seen so much of this sort of thing, countless images of beatings and dogs and cursing and hoses, but something about that day in Selma touched a nerve deeper than anything that had come before. Maybe it was the concentrated focus of the scene, the mass movement of those troopers on foot and riders on horseback rolling into and over two long lines of stoic, silent, unarmed people. This wasn't like Birmingham, where chanting and cheering and singing preceded a wild stampede and scattering. This was a face-off in the most vivid terms between a dignified, composed, completely nonviolent multitude of silent protesters and the truly malevolent force of a heavily armed, hateful battalion of troopers. The sight of them rolling over us like human tanks was something that had never been seen before. People just couldn't believe that this was happening. Not in America. Women and children being attacked by armed men on horseback. It was impossible to believe. Again, I would encourage you to go and watch the video of this day. Like he says, it was a turning point uh, that really led to the Civil Rights Act being signed. When that happened, President Lyndon Johnson, he gave a speech in regard to what was happening and the significance of this day. And in that speech, he said this. This is the President Johnson's words. Even if we pass this bill, the battle will not be over. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement that reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessing of American life. Their cause must be our cause too, because it is not just theirs, but really it is all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. 
and we shall overcome. I think with, as we think about the reality of the last year of the pandemic, that isn't the only thing our country has been facing in the last year. Especially as we move toward in a couple months now to the anniversary of George Floyd's murder, it's important for us to realize that as much as this was a turning point in our country, it hasn't made the full turn yet. And there's still, we still need to be praying to this end that this type of equality and treatment of all people is fully seen in our country. This is something that Christians should care about. Probably one of the silliest things that I've been told in the last couple months is that at a church for us to care about these things is just going along with the culture. No, it's not. For the church to care about these things, for the church to say this isn't right, for the church to say this should matter, is leading the culture. These are the things that God cares about and how people are treated and how people are seen and how people are respected. This is something the church should be leading the way on, not fighting against. And so when we see the reality of what happened on a morning like this 56 years ago, when we see the reality of things still happening today, as a church, we need to pray to that end. We shouldn't just be prompted to care about these things when we see tragic moments. We should be prompted to care about these things in the day in and weekend of our lives. And so we need to pray that the turn would continue to go, that we would see more change, and that we would care about being part of that change as Jesus' church. And so as we pray about the message today and what we're going to be talking about, I just couldn't let a day like this go by without reminding us what happened 56 years ago and in many ways things that still are happening. And as believers, we should care about that. And so in that, let's pray, not only for our country, but for our church, and that God would speak to our hearts this morning. God, we do thank you for the God that you are. We thank you for the fact that you love us. We thank you, God, that you have made us in your image, that we are all your image bearers. And so in that, God, I pray that you would help us to care about those who look different than us. God, I pray that you would help us to care about how people are treated in our country I pray, and in our world. I pray, God, that you would help us to be concerned and what, about how people are, have to, what they have to put up with and how they live and the things that they have to experience in this country. God, I pray that you would let us see the word justice as a holy word, as something from your scriptures, as far as a value and a character trait of who you are. God, I pray that you would help us as a church to be leaders and examples in the culture of who you are and how you want your people to be and how you want all people to be treated. God, I pray that you would help the church to be leaders within this issues and not deterrence and hindrances. Forgive us for the times when we cause and perpetrate the problem. God, I help, that, help, help us to see what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. God, I pray that this church would be a light in this city, that we would not add to the darkness, but we would deter it. God, I pray that we would make you proud in how we live and act and how we treat other image bearers. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Because this, as we think about the people that we are becoming in your image, this issue is part of that. And so I pray you would challenge our hearts this morning. I pray from your word you would speak to us 
and challenge us and encourage us and let us be real about who we are in you. And so I pray, Spirit, you would move in this place and in our homes. It's in your name we pray, amen. I want to ask you to join me in Philippians chapter 4. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can turn there, or if you have one on your phone, you can click there. If you don't, no big deal. Uh, I'm going to have it on the screen, so either way, you'll be good. Um, But we are looking at Philippians chapter 4, coming to the end of this letter. This is actually the sixth week that we've been looking at this awesome little letter in the New Testament, and we've been calling this series Becoming. The idea of who we are, the people that we are, but the people that we are Becoming. And the series began with two questions. Who am I? And what is God doing wherever he is? And in answering these questions at the beginning of the series, we said that we, we are meant to find our identity in a relationship with God, made possible through Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection. Along with this, we also said that God is always working, always present, always on the clock, never getting tired. And he's working specifically on the people that we are, the community that we are becoming. And so we've been praying, Jesus, help us to be the people you are working on us to become. I mean, it's really been the thing every week. Jeff and I, Jeff Anderson, who spoke a couple weeks ago, he even said, well, I'm just going to talk about the thing you talked about because That's what the passage is. And I'm like, well, I'm going to talk about it again next week because every part of this letter has been pointing to that. Jesus, help us to become the people, help us to be the people you are working on us to become. The whole letter has been like that. Help us to be like Jesus. Help us to be empowered with love that thinks, to be passionate about living intentional. And now at the letter's end, we're going to look at some of Paul's final thoughts in regard to this prayer. But really, we also want to ask, like, what else is there to say? I mean, he's talked to them about having boldness and confidence and passion. He's talked to them about the example of Jesus. He's talked to them about being intentional in how they live, shining like stars and not complaining. And most importantly, he's talked to them about how knowing Jesus is it that nothing else compares to knowing him and experiencing him. So what else is there to say? Well, he's going to tell them and us, you got to go and do it. (laughs) You actually have to go and be the people that he's working on you to become. Talking about this hasn't just been talk. He really wants them to be like this. And so in this last chapter, I could almost hear Paul anticipating the church going, oh, like, this is, you're for real about this. Like, you really want us to be like this at work and at school and with our neighbor. You really want us to do this. And I can see Paul just with like a smirk on his face, like, yeah, yeah, go. Out the nest. Get out of here. Go do it. But here's how you do it. And that's what this last passage is about. This last part of it, this encouraging charge at the end of the letter, okay, go be the people. Not just hearing what I'm saying, but doing this. Not just talking about it, but being this people. And it's important for us to realize in this last charge, in these last practical things that Paul's going to tell them, that they are stepping out into what is not the easiest of times. 
This is a church that is struggling with trials and the pressures from their culture of allegiance to the government. And in the midst of those difficult times, Paul is saying, yeah, no, go and be the people he's working on you to become. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, go and be like Jesus. It's going to be pretty easy, super sweet. Just go, you'll love it. But when reality hits, it's a little bit different. In all honesty, it's a little bit different. Hey, go be like Jesus. And it's going to be hard sometimes. It's going to be hard because life is hard at times. It's going to be hard because being obedient is hard at times. But this has been Paul's point in the entire letter. Be the people that God's working on you to become even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even in the difficulties. Be the people that he's working on you to become. So in the first chapter, he prayed for them to be a certain type of people. And now as they leave in chapter 4, these, the end of the letter, he's going to give them these practical steps to actually put it into practice. And so the three paragraphs that we're going to look at today between verses three, excuse me, 4 and 13 all go together. They all work together. And that's really important because it's really easy to misread these paragraphs if we separate them and take them each individually. They work together. And in this first paragraph, Paul tells us to do three practical things that all flow together. In this first paragraph, we see him saying, let your identity in Jesus guide you. Focus, recall, and surrender. He gives these directives like one after the other. Do this, do this, do this. But it comes down to these words. Focus, recall, surrender. Let your identity in Jesus guide you. That word focus comes from verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He has been talking about rejoicing a lot in this letter. Like, he keeps bringing it up. In fact, in the beginning of chapter 3, he acknowledged, I'm going to say this again, and I feel good saying about this again, because it's important. And so now here in chapter 4, Re rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it louder for the people in the back. Rejoice. Everybody needs to hear this. Rejoice. But don't take Paul saying rejoice as don't worry, be happy. Don't misunderstand it as that. That's not what he's saying here. Paul's writing from imprisonment. His life is not going as he wants it to be. This is not going well for him. But he's saying rejoice because what has rejoice in all of Philippians been about? Finding joy in the fact that God is always present and always working. He's finding, he's rejoicing in the Lord in reg regardless of the circumstance. Not rejoicing for the circumstance, rejoicing in the Lord while I'm in the circumstance. And so to folk, regardless of the thing I'm going through, whatever it is, good or bad, incredibly awesome or completely horrible, I focus on who he is. And I rejoice in the fact that he is present and he is working. And so Paul, focus, redirect your hearts to him. But then it's recall. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The idea of being reasonable here is connected to the idea of gentleness or kindness. 
It doesn't mean be timid. It doesn't mean be soft. That's not the idea of this. It means don't be reactionary and don't retaliate. Be the opposite of what maybe your natural inclination would be. Because if it's really, really difficult or something really bad happens, we want to immediately react. Or if somebody's attacking us or persecuting us, we want to get back at them or maybe retaliate, have revenge. And what Paul is saying is, don't react that way. Rise above your circumstances. Be somebody while this stuff is happening. If rejoice is focused on who God is, then being reasonable is recalling who I am in Jesus. We typically only focus on the circumstances that we're going in. But to be reasonable is to add an end statement. So I'm in the midst of a really difficult time. Typically, we, people would only say that. But to be reasonable is to say, I'm in the midst of a really difficult time and God is with me in the midst of it. I'm going through some really hard stuff right now and I know God is working while I'm in it. This is really confusing and I don't know what's going on. And I'm a child of God while it's going on. And so to be reasonable is to say there is more than just my circumstance. I'm going to remember who I am in God. Don't simply react. Don't lash out. Focus with your heart focused on God. Recall who you are in him. And with our hearts focused on him, as we recall who we are in him, we then surrender. It says in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now this idea of, excuse me, don't be anxious about anything, that is much easier said than done. To be anxious is to be apprehensive. To be anxious is to feel fear, to be uncertain, to have negative expectations about what is, what is to come or what could come or what could happen. Here's the thing that I think it's really important for us to realize. Everyone will feel anxious at times. I think we have to be honest about that. I don't say that to minimize the reality. I say that to level the playing field. We all experience anxiety. It might come in different waves and it might look different from all for different people, but there isn't anyone who doesn't experience it. So don't feel guilty or bad when you experience that because it's normal, especially in a year like this, to experience those things is normal. The pandemic has test intensified the reality of anxiety. It's not hard to find studies that talk about how things it's impacted mental health. So to experience anxiety is real. Well, then how can he say, don't be anxious in, any, in anything? Is God setting us up for failure? If we all experience anxiety, why would he say, don't be anxious? It, God isn't setting us up for failure, though. Not at all. We will experience anxiety, but we don't have to be defined by anxiety. And that's the difference. What Paul is saying 
is that when those moments happen, we have to take those moments, surrender those moments to God by talking to him, by asking for help, by being thankful for what there is to be thankful for. Think about it like this. Life in and of itself brings a lot of things that take energy and cause strain. School, employment, finances, dating, marriage, kids, getting older, where we live. Life is just hard in and of itself. Life is challenging. And that isn't bad. That's just reality. Not everything is easy, but it still is good. Hard things can still be good. Even challenging things can still be good. We work. We go through things. We have to deal with life. But then it's one thing for, to be dealing with these things in the normal flow of life. But when we feel anxiety about the normal flow of life, it's like we have the normal weight of life and then somebody hands us a brick. I mean, it's one thing for me to be dealing with my kids, but then to feel anxiety about parenting is making it heavier. And then not only the idea of parenting, but dealing with that, but then you think about it's one thing to deal with finances, but then feeling anxiety about your finances. It's one thing to already be dealing with school and projects and work, but then feeling anxiety about that. Somebody hands you another brick, and you keep dealing with the normal things of life, but anxiety adds more weight onto stuff. And the more that you have, then you're carrying this huge weight as you go through life. And then on top of it, a pandemic happens. And you have all this weight that you're carrying. This is the reality of anxiety. Life is already heavy enough. To have all of this to carry, we feel stuck. We feel like we can't do it. We feel like we're going to drop or fail, right? What, God, what Paul is saying when he says, pray to the Lord, ask, be thankful. He's saying, you don't have to carry the anxiety. He's saying, stop trying to carry the weights yourself. He's saying, surrender, give, present these things to the Lord. Allow him to carry it. Stop trying to carry the bricks on your own. Stop trying to balance it. Stop trying to figure it out. Thinking that you can do it by yourself or you're supposed to do it by yourself. Anxiety will come, but we don't have to hold on to it and be defined by it. That's the point here. Paul says, surrender it to the Lord. Talk to him. Ask him. Be thankful. Or taken together, hand all of the bricks of anxiety to God by hoping in him. Hope is the antithesis of anxiety. If anxiety fears the future, hope says, I have confidence in God. I don't know what's going to happen, but he knows what's going to happen. And when we do this, when we talk to God about what we're experiencing, when we ask him for things that we need or even what we don't even realize we need, when we acknowledge things to be grateful for, when we bring the bricks to God, set, Paul says that peace comes into these rough situations. And not only does peace come, 
but it builds a wall of protection around our hearts and our minds. And I know that we think about some of the things that we're experiencing, the stresses that we have to do, and I don't understand how this peace can come into this. This situation, the pandemic life, dealing with loss, dealing with separation, dealing with life. I don't understand how peace can come here. That's the point. It's peace beyond understanding. It's peace and hope and assurance that somebody's in control when it doesn't make sense that that could happen. That's what the peace of God does. And it then brings a wall of protection around your mind and hearts. Because what anxiety does is it skews our thinking. Excuse how we see God, excuse how we see ourselves, and excuse how we see others. So when we bring all of this stuff to God and say, God, help me with this, give me peace within this, give me hope within this, that peace comes up and says, this is, no, no, negative thoughts, not in here today. Negative truth about who you are, not in this heart and this mind. God puts a wall of protection around us. Hear me though, I am not minimizing the realities of stress by patronizing telling you to simply pray and it would all be better. Because this is not a one-time thing. The moment that the difficulty of life comes and you get that stress and you hand that over to God, probably 10 minutes later something else is going to happen. This is a constant God I need you. God, please understand this. It's a constantly, it's almost like a a handoff. Okay, life is giving you stress. Here you go, Lord. Life is giving us stress, taking it to him. Casting our anxieties to him, remembering who he is and remembering who we are in him. The Philippians were going through trials and persecution for their faith. That was what was causing their anxieties and fears and uncertainties. What's causing yours? What are the things that you're, it's so heavy right now because you're trying to carry it alone rather than bringing those things to the Lord. You need to cast focus, recall, and surrender. And that has to be a regular rhythm in our lives, a regular just bringing things to him. But the more that you hold on to these bricks, the more that you're defined by these bricks, choose to be defined by these bricks, that's only intensifying the anxiety. We were not meant to be defined by these things. We are meant to be defined by the Lord, and he wants you to bring these things to him. So let your identity in Jesus guide you. Focus on who he is, recalling who you are, and surrendering the anxieties and troubles that come to him. That goes into the, now, this first part, longer part, kind of focuses on the reality of who God is and who we are in him. The second paragraph goes into, okay, how that actually looks in our day-to-day. And the second part, Paul is telling the church, bring the experience of Jesus into every situation. It says in verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He says, 
practice these things. You know, when you're on a sports team, you have to practice a lot. I mean, think about playing basketball before, my daughter in basketball now, uh, passing, dribbling, shooting, offense, defense, all of the variations of those different things. It's not just to come in one day, hear what passing is, and then never talk about it is. It's Every single time we're going to practice passing. Every single time we're going to practice dribbling. Every single time we're going to go over our plays. Every single time we're practicing the things that makes basketball what it is. In the same way, Paul is saying, you need to practice the things of Jesus if you're going to be a person who's following Jesus. If you're going to be like him, then you need to practice the things that define who he is. Keep at these things. Make these things happen. Practice these things. Like a sports team that keeps being mindful and growing and practicing, we have to be about the things that define Jesus. He told them to recall who they are, to be reasonable. Well, this list that he gives them defines what being reasonable looks like in a day-to-day life. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy. We're not going to go really long into every one of these things, but actually last summer, we did a series on this. If you weren't with us last summer, if you go into the New Life app and you go to the Lincoln Park messages and you look for the Good Thoughts series, where we took each of these items and each week we... First week we talked about what is true. The second week we talked about what is noble. And so kind of really unpacking these ideas. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those. But how do we define these terms? Whatever is true, live as a champion of what is right and real. No conspiracies. Whatever is noble, living in an awe-inspiring way that people would look up to God when they see you. Live whatever is just. Give people their due regard and proper treatment. Whatever is pure, living a blameless life, free from evil or wrongdoing. Whatever is lovely, living in a way that calls forth the love of God. Whatever is commendable, living in a way that doesn't disqualify my testimony. If there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, cling to whatever helps you to be a faithful follower of Jesus. The life and the teachings of Jesus are our example for this. This is why I say bring Jesus, the experience of Jesus, into every situation. Because whatever the moment is, whatever's going on, we represent Jesus and people will see him in us. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5 where he says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. I've said this before. We are God's plan A for the world to know about him. He wants us to show people what Jesus is like. And people will see what Jesus is like when we live in a way that is true and noble and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent. And so in every situation that we are, if people experience these things coming out of us, they're going to experience the truth of who Jesus is in us. And so I need to ask myself, what does truth look like in this thing? What does it mean to be just in this thing? 
how do I make that happen here? How we live matters. How we live matters. When there's difficult times going on, how we live matters. When the culture's up in arms and divided, how the church lives matters. We should be beacons of what is true and noble, noble and just and pure and lovely and commendable, not the opposite of these things, and God forgive us when we do. And so you have to think about who you are in the moments of your life. God, help me to practice your character that people would experience you when they experience me. Again, that is not always easy. Sometimes that's really hard, which is why the last part of this section is so helpful and important. If we are to bring the experience of Jesus into every situation, Paul follows that up by saying, rely on the support of Jesus to be a person like Jesus. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in every, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You know that I, I've learned the secret. That just sounds like a shady, like, late night commercial for selling something, right? Here's the secret for everything you want to be happy in life and well fulfilled. We would kind of be suspect of that. But Paul is saying, I know the secret of how to navigate life regardless of what life throws at you. And Paul certainly knows everything that life could throw at a person. He has experienced the best of times and a ton of the worst of times. He says that he has learned to be content in all of them. Well, what does that mean? Well, in that, the way that they would take this word of what it's communicating, it gives the idea that I have learned to be self-sufficient in all circumstances. One scholar says that one is content means one is independent of others and of circumstances in the sense of being free from their either causing distress or affecting serenity. I am independent from other people of who I am. I am who I am regardless of anybody else and regardless of any situation. I know what my identity is. I know my value. I know who I am regardless of anything, regardless of anyone, and regardless of any situation. And I know the secret to this. I know the trick of how to face life because of this self-sufficiency. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Talk about a total change in direction. I know the secret of being self-sufficient in our world is to be completely, uh, completely self-dependent, to be completely dependent on Jesus. The secret to being content to being independent of others is to be utterly dependent on Jesus. The secret to facing all that life brings is not relying on anyone being a certain way 
or for our situations in life to be a certain way, but to rely completely on Jesus. See, typically what happens is if life is going a certain way, then I'm all good. But what Paul is saying is you're all good regardless of what's happening. And that's the thing that we need to own up to. The script that you have in your head and that I have as far as how life should go, that script isn't going to work. None of us know. None of us have an idea. Why is life all like this the last year? Because that's what life does. The scripts that we, I think about, you get so anticipating of how a movie's gonna end or how a show's gonna end, not naming any specific examples going on right now. And then it doesn't happen that way and it's like, oh, this stinks. That's how we treat life. But you know why you thought that way? Is you were looking at the wrong script. We have no idea what's gonna happen. We have no idea what's gonna occur. And so we're shocked when life throws us a curve we're told that's what's going to happen. What God is saying, what Paul is saying here is, I know that the only script that I need to look to and look forward to and find confidence is, is who I am in Jesus. Because regardless of what happens, he is the one I'm dependent on. And I'm dependent on nothing else. Now you think about how our culture responds to things to talk about the secret to facing life. Anything outside of God, the secret would be you have to do it yourself. You have to work hard. The secret is you have to have this training or this experience. You have to be part of this particular group. The secret is you have to have this or be with this person or have this title, whatever it is. But Paul is saying is that the good news is Jesus plus nothing is the life that we were meant to be in. And if I'm going to trust that Jesus plus nothing is how I find life, then Jesus plus nothing is how I have to live life. In his autobiography, the book I mentioned, John Lewis says this, just, I think it's such a great summary of how life apart from Jesus, how our culture navigates things. He says this, I think people who feel lost, people who are searching for a place to belong, for something to believe in, often move from one extreme to another first embracing something or someone at one far end of the spectrum, then forsaking that position or person for something entirely at the other end, all in the process of trying to find themselves. And that's the reality of our world, but the gospel is telling us nothing else that we look to will give our hearts what they're longing for. It's only in Jesus do we find that life. And so, we trust in God to strengthen us to live this life. But we can't take this verse out of context. This is the most taken out of context verse in the Bible. I can do all things to him who strengthens me. He's not saying you can just go do whatever and magic wand, boing, Jesus is going to bless it. Because remember what this whole section's been talking about. Practice these things. Put these things into practice. What is Paul talking about where I can do all things? I can be a true, noble, just, commendable, pure person because Jesus is going to strengthen me to be that type of a person. When it's easier to lie and to cheat and to do whatever, Jesus is going to strengthen you to be a person who's true. When it's easier to just think for yourself and 
find safety and just fend for whoever you are, God is going to strengthen you to be noble. Any of the opposites, Jesus is going to strengthen you to be the person that he's calling you to be. Matt Chandler says this, Philippians 4.13 is not about chasing your dreams, following your passions, pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps, accompanying anything you want with God's help. It is instead the testimony of those who have Christ and have found in him supremely valuable, joyous, and satisfying. In a life constantly marked by these extreme highs and lows, Paul has found the great constant security, the great centering hope. Jesus Christ himself. And in him, he strengthens us. When life is hard, he will strengthen you with his hope and his presence and his truth to be the person he's making you to become. Sometimes that strength comes with an acknowledgement that he is with you. Sometimes that strength comes from the truth of his word. Sometimes that strength comes from the community of faith that he has placed you in which is why all three of these are necessary for a life with Christ. What are you experiencing now? What weights are you carrying? You cannot make it on your own. To be the person God wants you to be is hard. To be the person God wants you to be at work, in school, in your home, in your building, in this city, is hard but Jesus is going to strengthen you to do it. You just have to rely on his strength and not yours. You take all three of these things that we've talked about together. Let your identity in Jesus guide you, focus, recall, and surrender. Bring the experience of Jesus into every situation. Rely on the support of Jesus to be a person like Jesus. Really the only way to do these things, to actually be these people, is to pause a little bit more. To not just react, to not just immediately just respond. But to stop. And sometimes that pause might be in a moment. Sometimes that pause is weekly as we gather together. Sometimes we pause just for seasons away. But we need to stop and, okay God, I know that you're here. This last week, I had a moment just feeling this. I mean, I was feeling the weight of this message, of what we're talking about. Just kind of overwhelmed with some stuff and some stress and bricks coming my way and just literally just feeling like I really couldn't get anything done because I was just consumed with some of the emotions and the stress of my week. And this had a, okay, set back and okay, God, practice what you preach. I know that you're here. And I know who I am in you. And you know the things that I'm worrying about right now and you know the things I need to accomplish. And I could really use some help right now. The, ch the challenges didn't go away. But just the sense of, okay, let's go. Sometimes we can't, we feel like we're stumbling is because we are. You need to stop. Focus on who he is, recall who you are, and surrender those moments. Bring the experience of him into it and rely on his strength. We need one another for that. And you know what, if you're here today or you're watching at home 
and you've never put your faith in Jesus, just doing those things, that's not what you need. You need to put your trust in Jesus. You need to find that life and that peace and that identity that only comes in him. You can't, I mean, the reality of anxiety is the consequences and the, what happens because of sin. Sin has broken our creation. It's broken our world. And in turn, it's shattered who we are. That's what causes sadness. That's what causes brokenness. That's what causes anxiety. It's a sign of the reality of sin. And we can't take care of it on our own. We turn to all these different things to try to fix it, and we can't. If the pandemic has showed us anything, it showed us that nothing that we look to will fix the realities of life or our hearts. And so we have to, rather than turning to all other kinds of things, we have to turn to Jesus. We have to turn to the truth of what he's done on the cross and the power of his resurrection. That he took all of that sin on himself to fix the reality of broken humanity and creation. And so we can turn to him and find forgiveness. We can turn to him and find healing. We can turn to him and find life. But it's only when we turn to him that we do. And so you need to stop turning to other things and turn to Jesus. You need to stop identifying in other things and identify in Jesus. Because it's only in him that we're going to find the life we long for. It's only in him that you're going to find peace. And so if that's you today, I beg you to run and surrender to Jesus. And if you are a follower of him, find strength in him. So God, we come before you. We thank you so much for the love you have for us. We thank you for that you keep working on us. We thank you for the hope that we can have in you. God, for anyone that doesn't know you, let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day where they find life. Give them courage to pursue you as you're pursuing them. God, for our community, the people that we are, the people that you're working on us to become, help us to be like you, Lord. Help us to practice who you are, Lord. We ask all these things in your name. Let's stand and do this last song together.